Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be taking a look at this book across three messages on Sunday. Elder Bob will uh, come in on the 17th. But 1 Peter 1, 1 to 9. And if you could please stand as we read God's word together. 1 Peter 1. <clears throat> Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Please be seated. Again, happy 4th of July weekend, everyone. Uh, hope you get to enjoy some fireworks, barbecue, pole time, whatever traditions that you like to do. Maybe you get to watch The Patriot. I think that's the only decent American Revolution movie out there. John Adams doesn't count. It's an HBO miniseries, and The Patriot is more exciting anyway. Um, well, this weekend, I think, um, it's especially appropriate for First Peter. Um, it just lines up really nicely. You know, uh, we, we, we ought to pause. We ought to take a moment and give thanks for the freedoms that we enjoy in this country and often we take for granted. Um, give thanks for the fact that you are here this Sunday morning and you can worship, uh, worship freely. Because if you know the letter of 1 Peter, you know that the recipients would not have taken that kind of freedom um, for granted. Because for them, following after Christ, right, Christian worship in the Roman Empire at that time cost something to them. Right? It cost something to them. Um, and it was a kind of cost, it's a kind of cost that, uh, for better or maybe often for worse, we're not, we're not too familiar with. And so it's in that context, right, to those kind of people, suffering not physical persecution yet, suffering at least uh, social persecution, right? They're, they're verbally maligned, they're being ostracized. Peter writes as Christ's under-shepherd to them, and the whole point of the letter is, in the midst of your suffering, I want to give you hope, and I want to give you encouragement, and I want to strengthen your hearts so that you can get through suffering very, very well. Not just 
kind of make it over the hump, but endure victoriously. And so it's a, you know, it's a very, very pastoral letter, and it's like just stuffed, it's chock full of, of gospel truths, like who Christ is, what he did, who you are in Christ, everything that you possess because of what Jesus did. But at the same time, you know, Peter, Peter is a, is a wise and he's, um, he's a truthful shepherd, a truthful pastor. And so he doesn't just coddle them, right? It's not just grace, 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 love, 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 but there is also truth and there's some hard truth in hard times. And he calls them many times to obey and live out the gospel in the midst of all the fire around them, right? So that they would, you know, exercise their faith in God. Exercise your faith in the promises, right? It's not just promises on a page and you look at it and you go, wow, that's great. But receive those promises, actively believe on them and live out your faith in light of it. You look at verse six though, and you might think, well, we're not persecuted Christians, obviously. We live in sunny Orange County, California, most of us, and life more or less on the outside at least is great. What does this have to do with us? In verse six, Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, right? Various trials, multicolored trials, all sorts of trials, trials of every shape and size and color, different trials for different stages of life. And so this is not just unique to Christians who are persecuted for their faith, but this is applicable to all. The heart of this letter goes out to all of us. And as we look at it, we're just going to narrow down on verses 3 and 9. And Peter, we're going to find, gives us three perspectives of faith in the midst of various kinds of griefs, various kinds of suffering, so that you and I would suffer well. Right? So that you and I would follow the ultimate sufferer, Jesus Christ, who went on ahead of us. Right? And when we see what Peter is talking about, when we see the, the, the beginning and the middle, and the end, and all three perspectives, right? you're going to realize that regardless of any suffering, our lives are more glorious, more awe-inspiring, more joyful, more put in whatever adjective you want to put in there than you can possibly imagine. So three perspectives. The first perspective that you need to have in the midst of suffering, Peter says it very briefly, but it's very important. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Right? That's, the, that's the beginning. That's, that's the past, if you want to look at it in time. right? That's the past. You are born again. And so, to a people in suffering, and to us, and to you, in whatever trials or difficulties you're facing, Peter says, you are not defined by your suffering. You're not defined by your suffering. Right? You know, if you ever had like a cut or a sprained ankle or, you know, uh, any kind of injury at one part of your body, isn't it so often like it feels like your whole body is in that one part, right? You get a little cut and your whole body is, you know, is racked with pain and, and everything gets localized right there, right? Um, or if you have like this one grief or like a chronic suffering or a thorn in the flesh or a series of thorns, I mean, it's just very, very easy, small pains to big pains, you know, one isolated pain, series of pains, to see your life kind of through a prism of pain. And everything is pain. Everything is suffering. Right? And you throw up your hands because 
to you. Everything is grief. Now, I think to a degree, when I think we come face to face with different sufferings and pains, it's, and, we, and we recognize like how life is not pretty and life is broken, it's helpful because it sobers you and us, you and me up, right? It sobers us up. It, it, it causes us to be a little bit wiser about life, right? That everything is not all that it's, you know, cracked up to be. But the problem, but the problem is, right, when you forget that you're born again, you can easily see yourself, see yourself as the sufferer, right? It's my suffering. My suffering is the suffering. It's this great suffering I have to endure, my cross I have to bear. And you can start to believe, right, whether it's a little cut, <laughs> whether it's a sprained ankle, or whether it's a series of, series of you know, emotional cuts, you can believe that your pain is special. And, and you start to believe that you're special because of your pain, right? Because of your sufferings. When really, Jesus, like I said before, is the sufferer. Jesus is the ultimate sufferer, right? And he suffered on our behalf so that when we suffer right now, it doesn't end us. It just means that God is completing our characters. He's finishing us off. So Peter shepherds these suffering Christians and he's reminding them and he's reminding us, you're not defined by suffering. Right? You are born again by the Father's power. Right? You are a child of grace. That's who you are. But if you think about it, right, I mean, just this past week, just review your, review your mental notes. Right? Review your life. Any pain, any suffering, any injustice, any kind of burden, it's very, very isolating. Right? It's very, very isolating. Uh, and the harder the pain, the harder it is to express, right? And so you feel all alone. Like whether it's, you know, moms, you know, you're trying to get your kids on schedule, right? Whether it's a kind of unrelenting, demanding boss or season at your workplace, whether it's marital strife, relational conflicts and grudges and you can't forgive or you, you can't forgive someone or they can't forgive you or loneliness as a single, whatever stage you're at, career instability, financial loss, it's easy for it to become just you and the trial, right? And so no one gets in, and you don't get out to minister to people, and you can't, you, you can't be ministered to, right? And so in places like that, in times like that, you think, I'm the only one, right? Nobody else understands, right? Or something like, you know, why does she complain? Why does he complain about, about this or that, you know, when they're better off than me, when they have so many more resources than me? Right? And you get self-pity, you get self-absorption, you get like all those negative emotions. So often, if you think about you and suffering, I think about, I think about my suffering, my quote-unquote sufferings, right? And I kind of want to glory in them. I kind of want to like wallow in them, right? So that I can, I, I, I can almost believe that I'm better than other people who have it easier in that season of life, right? Or better, or, or that, that, you know, somehow like I'm more worthy of God's grace because I'm going through, through this or through that. Right? And to this, Peter says, wake up, remember who you are. In two words, right? You're not you anymore. You're not your suffering. You have a whole new character. You have a whole new identity. You're a whole new you. That's why it's called rebirth, right? It's rebirth. You're absolutely 100%, verse three, a child according to his great, his massive 
mercy so that not suffering and not anything else in this life defines who you are. God's grace in you, God's grace in me defines who we are. Right? So what is Peter doing? Right? In this little, little phrase here, what is he doing to start off the letter this way to a suffering Christians? You know what he's doing? He's doing what we should all be doing to one another. It's the, and what we should do, be doing to our own hearts because this is the foundation of good counseling. This is the foundation of prayer. Right? He's teaching us not just to look inside. That's what happens in pain, right? You look inward, you withdraw, and you, know, you get very tight, and you're just thinking about yourself, and you're going over that suffering over and over again. And we look around, and it's just pain, and it's suffering, and why this? And you're just waiting for the next, you know, you're waiting for that suffering to end so you can just get on with the next thing. But then you know that there's something else on the horizon. And Peter's saying, lift up your eyes. Look up, look out. Not in, not at yourself, not around you. He's elevating their eyes, our eyes of faith above, you know, above the suffering, above the brokenness, above the mess. And we have to see, till we get to see life from God's perspective. That no matter what you're being troubled by, take it to heart. Take courage. If you're a Christian, you have been supernaturally born again. And that means... Your whole life is on a new course. Right? Not determined by your family, by your culture, by your background, by any of your limitations or any external pressures on your life. Your whole life is determined on a, by a brand new course, not by your troubles, but by what Colossians says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's where you're headed. That's the trajectory God has set you on. I mean, it's the principle of... Uh, of like producing like, right? The God of glory rebirths you. He births you again, so you're headed for glory. And suffering is not gonna threaten that. Right? The sovereign king of the universe gave you his life. That is what defines you. So take your eyes off the trial. And Peter is saying, feed and nourish your hearts on what has been done to you. You're once spiritually dead, right? Now you are alive in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're an object of divine mercy and love. That's how he defines you. That's how you need to define yourself. That's the starting point of encouragement. That's the starting point of hope and of comfort. So number one, born again. You have to look back. Number two, you got to fast forward all the way to the end, right? All the way to the end, verses three and five. Look at verses three and four with me. At the end, he says, uh, cause us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Let's just stop there. And that's a lot. And, you know, Peter, <laughs> to suffering Christians, doesn't shrink back from teaching theology. He doesn't shrink back from rich, deep theology. He actually pours it on even more. And as a side note, he teaches us in suffering, you know, one of the things God is calling us to do is remember doctrine, remember truth. You need to hear preaching. You need to hear teaching. You need to hear the word. You need, to, you need a prophet. <laughs> you need an apostle. You need God's word, right? That's what you need in suffering, and he pours it on, right? And this truth here, the truths that are, that are in these verses, right, talking about our living hope and our inheritance, if you just 
you know, if you just let this burrow deep down into your hearts, it will absolutely change you. It won't just shape the way you think about suffering. It'll change your reflexes in the suffering. First of all, Peter says that we have a living hope, right? It's a living hope. Why? Second half of verse three, living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So because our Lord is risen, right? Because our hope is grounded in that, there's absolute confidence on our future. Absolute confidence, right? 100% certainty. It's a completely assured thing, right? Not like, you know, the way we use hope all the time is like a wish or a fairy tale or a dream, right? You know, you wish, oh, I hope, you know, that they really liked me in that interview and that I hope that interview went well and I hope they call me back next week and hire me. I hope she says yes when I ask her out. I hope, you know, dot, 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 right? We say that all the time, but for the Christian, our hope is this. Whatever is true of Jesus is true of us. So if you look at his future, if you look at his glory, you look where he is, guess what? That equals where you are and where you're going to be. And by implication, if Peter is calling these living hope, this is a living hope, then the implication is what? Everything else is a dead hope, right? It's a dead hope. Everything else that we hope in, even the best things, they're all false trusts. They're all bankrupt confidences, if you will. There's that great image that Jeremiah has early in his letter as he's uh, rebuking Israel and he and he calls their false trust, their, their, their quote-unquote hopes, cisterns that can't hold water, right? But our hope, absolutely sure, absolutely true, because Jesus is living. Now, if you go on, right, and Peter goes on, and he goes to verse 4, he says the object of that hope is an inheritance, is our inheritance in Christ. Right? And that is a rich word. Right? And that alone could cover weeks of sermons. That's a rich, rich word, rich concept in the Bible. In the Old Testament, that word is used for the land of Israel, right? Canaan. It's promised to God's people. This is your inheritance. Right? As people of God, this is, this is what God the Father has for you. This is your blessing that you receive as children of God. But for us, and Peter is very conscious of this throughout the letter, how all, you know, like how he, impl- how he uses language that was given to Israel and he gives it to the church as well. And he says this, the promise is not for an earthly land, right? But what Hebrews 11 calls a better country, a heavenly city. Right? And the New Testament, I mean, Paul, especially Paul, talks about the inheritance a lot, right? Even our, our uh, meditation passage this morning, Ephesians 1, 11 to 14, inheritance, right? It's everywhere, in Romans 8.17, we're actually called fellow heirs with Christ, right? And what is that inheritance? It's funny because the New Testament talks about the inheritance a lot, talks about it in very glorious terms, right? Almost, you know, like you can't quite describe it, but from what we can see, it's the fullness of our salvation. It's the, full, it's the totality of all the blessings related to being a Christian. You're going to get all of that at the end, right? All the blessings, all the rewards, Right? as sons of God receive from their father, the king. That's, that's the inheritance, right? just like in an earthly inheritance, whatever your parents leave you, whether for good or bad. Right? But God leaves us a really great inheritance. Right? This is God's heavenly kingdom and everything in it, it's yours. That's our inheritance. Right? 
And Peter goes on to describe it in some detail, right? And he, he talks about it in four different ways. He says, first of all, that it's imperishable, right? Very quickly here, that means that it doesn't decay, right? The Bible actually uses that word to talk about God. Romans one twenty three. God is imperishable. He says it's undefiled, right? It means it never loses its luster, its beauty. It's the same word used for Jesus' sinlessness in Hebrews 7.26. See, uh, it also says it's unfading, right? In 1 Peter 1.23, Peter uses it for how grass withers, right? That, that's fading. This is unfading. It's permanent, right? Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, And fourthly, maybe best of all, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. You don't have to try to earn it. You don't have to try to go after it and get it. It's a gift. It's by divine birthright. You're children of God. It's kept by God in heaven for you. And prior to this point, Peter Peter was all um, saying, you know, us and our in terms of salvation. And then right here, he says it's for you. He, he absolutely personalizes this inheritance. And what he wants to do is he wants to put it right there in your hearts, right there in our hearts, so that we could, we could almost taste it. We would feel it. We would sense the gravity of it. Right? He wants to say emphatically, this future glory is your property. Just put your name right there. It's yours. And at the end of verse 4, if you actually flesh out that translation, you can read it like this. This inheritance is having ever been and thus ever continuing to be safeguarded in heaven for you. I mean, there's, I mean Peter doesn't leave, it, leave any room for, like, what did you exactly mean by kept in heaven for me? I mean, it's the strongest terms possible about the glory of this inheritance, the security of it absolute certainty of it. Nothing can touch this thing. Nothing. Right? Again, think of a legally drawn up, you know, proper will. Right? It's binding. It's a binding promise. Covenant, contract, whatever word you want to use. A promise. Binding legal promise that your parents will leave property X, Y, and Z, assets X, Y, and Z to you. Nothing can come in and interfere with that. And even more, to top it all off, Verse 5, not only is the inheritance kept, but you, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So it's like, not only is the salvation, not only is the inheritance, not only is the living hope absolutely secure, you're absolutely secure. And in suffering, I think the people needed that. Right? The people needed to know, like, am I going to make it? I understand that that's going to make it because that's in your hands, but... I look all around and there's, there's, there's unrest and turmoil in my heart and in my life. Am I going to make it? You know, do I have to like, you know, muster up more courage? And do I have to just like, you know, bear down and grit it and get through? Am I going to make it? Peter says, yeah, you're going to make it. But you're not going to make it because you're so strong and you're so talented and you're so wise and you're so experienced and you're so powerful. You're going to make it because I'm going to make you make it. Right? I'm going to make you make it. He is faithful to finish the good work he began in us. Philippians 1.6. Now, because our future is set, 
it makes all the difference right now as you and I suffer. It makes all the difference. I mean, think about it. If our inheritance is in this life only, if, if the stuff here, right, a hope here, if that's my future, then I am placing all my hope, right, think about the opposite, right? All my hope in something that perishes, that can get defiled, that fades, and, may, and worst of all, that's not protected, that can get messed with, it can be touched. Right? And we can't, you know, we need to step back and say, this is for even the best things of life, the good things of life, right? The good things, right? Even these things, Peter draws us to make a comparison. If you put it on the scales, you put it next to heavenly inheritance, it's not just like a little bit, you know, like 60-40. It's not just that earthly inheritances fade by comparison to the heavenly one. It's like they're absolutely blown away absolutely blown away, right? And that's kind of like what Jesus is talking about when he, when he says, you know, if you want to follow me, right? If you want to be my disciple, you must hate your father and your mother and your brothers and sisters, right? By comparison, your love for Christ should look like that, right? And by comparison, our earthly inheritance, absolutely, they're not even in the same ballpark, not even in the same universe, right? Now think this out with me. If my inheritance, if my living hope, right, with quotes, is in health or beauty, what happens when looks and health begin to fade, right? What do you do, right? What happens when I die? If my inheritance is in my career, what happens when I get demoted? What happens when I lose my job? What happens when I can't work anymore, right? If my inheritance is in a relationship, Romantic relationship, what happens when that person rejects me? When that person fails me or I fail them? Right? What if I look to my children and they're my living hope? Right? What happens when they don't turn out the way we envision them to turn out? What if they go astray? And that's my living hope. That's my inheritance. Right? I mean, it touches us wherever you are. I mean, suffering is constant in this life, right? even in the suburbs. Even in sunny Orange County, it doesn't know race, it doesn't know culture, it doesn't know socioeconomic status. And so ask yourself, does that inheritance, does that hope get me through? Does it help me? Does it help me? Does it help me fight sin? Does it help me deal with massive suffering? Does it help me counsel other people who need comfort? Does it keep me from panicking and staying up at night? When life falls apart, does it do what it promises? Are you more satisfied because of that living hope or that earthly inheritance? Are you more poised where you can handle life better? Are you more, is your heart more at rest, right? Because of this earthly inheritance. Truth is, if you hope in an inheritance in this life, it's a path to emotional and spiritual suicide. Right? But, the good news, if we lay hold by faith of our future glory, we're changed for the good right here, right now, today. It's not just we're changed later. This has present implications, right? It's just like, for those of you who just got married, Keith, right? Or those of you who just got engaged, right, Han? I mean, you are looking forward to that wedding day, right? 
with everything that is in your being, you're looking forward to that day, and so you gear up for it, right? And your heart is bursting with expectation for it. And you reorder your life <laughs> so that you can um, get ready for that day. Like a couple expecting a first child, right? Especially first child, not third or fourth child, but the first child. <laughs> your whole life focuses on that arrival, right? You paint the room and you put, you put jungle themes on there or sports <laughs> themes or you put pink and fairies, you know, whatever. And it changes everything. It changes everything. Your whole life is like a missile lock on this child about to come, right? And you realize well, these basic everyday human hopes have tremendous motivating power. They will get you to work. They will get you to act. They will inspire you to do things that you never thought you would do, right? Like go to stores and buy girls' clothes. So, I mean, they have tremendous power on the human scale. So think about Genesis I mean, the, my favorite biblical illustration of how a future thing changes you right now and gets you through a, a difficult right now is Genesis 29:20, 20, right? So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him what? But a few days. Why? Because of the love that he had for her. Earthly inheritance, living hope. He kept looking at her every day, and his heart was so engrossed with her. He was so filled with love for her. It was, it was just like passing the time. Now, there was another seven years after that, but even that was okay, all right? That's how much he loved her and a very strong heart. So think about how this living home changes us right now, that future inheritance, right? When I should be very, very downcast, if I think about it, if I lay hold of it, it lifts up my hearts, right? It gives me, um, it's not a temporary fix, too. It's a peace, what does Philippians 4 say? It's a peace that passes all understanding. You cannot comprehend the power of this peace to settle your heart right now, right? You can't manufacture it. You can't buy it. It doesn't come from any earthly channel. It comes directly from God, right? I should be at unrest. I should be anxious. But increasingly, not all at once, but increasingly, man, I am not. Praise God. It gives me poise and confidence to take on life when a lot of times, especially with suffering, what? You're just reacting. You feel like life is take, overtaking you. It allows me to minister to others. Right? Maybe this is the best thing of all. It allows me to actually love others and serve others for their good without looking to get anything back from them. Why? Because my future is set. Everything that's important is taken care of and everything else is just, you know, it's just icing, right? Icing is good, but it's just icing, right? You don't need it. You, just, you, need, you need the cake and you have the cake. It motivates me, too, to take risks, right? To take risks when I should play it safe in this life, when I should go for comfort, when I should go for mine and my own and hoard and live for myself and build up my empire. It motivates me to take risks. And because of our future inheritance, we're inspired, I think, today to say no to a lot of different things that we would, in our flesh, say yes to. No to the hopes of this world, the temporary hopes, the spiritually bankrupt hopes, and say, yes, Lord, whatever you will, as John Newton said, whatever you will, whenever you will, however you will, because our inheritance is set. Right? First John 3, 2 to 3, beloved, we are God's children now. Right? First John 3, 2 to 3, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be, all right, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know it's a word of faith there. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, 
because we shall see him as he is. Verse three, and everyone who thus hopes in him, in Christ, right, purifies himself right now as he is pure. It changes you, it motivates you right here, right now. Now at the end of verse five, Peter says that this inheritance, this salvation, it's all prepared already and it's all done for you. Look, in your sufferings, you might think that you have to, you know, you might be tempted to think legalistically, moralistically, like I need to somehow complete, you know, this gift of his. I need to complete his grace. I need to complete his work through my sufferings. I somehow have to earn it. I have to deserve it more by going through these sufferings, right? And what is Peter doing? He's taking us all the way back to the beginning, all the way to the end. No, it's, it's a gift. It's a gift. What do you do with the gift? You just receive it. It's by divine birthright. You know, take the paternity test, right? You have new spiritual DNA. God is your father. You're a child of grace. You're an heir of, heir of Christ. So, I mean, this is, uh, this is, you know, this is amazing. Uh, Peter, to encourage suffering people, he calls them to lift their eyes up and to get out of yourself and stop thinking about just the problem or just the solution, identifying what's wrong and how can I fix it right now, right? And maybe that's how a guy thinks, right? That's how I think. And so, um, you know, that's how a lot of us think, right? We wanna just kind of get out of our circumstances because our faith is in the circumstances. We're looking at the circumstances and we're not looking at him and we're not looking at Christ. We need to hear Peter say to us, we need to we hear him whispered in our hearts, you are born again and even more, you are fellow heirs with Christ. And we need to daily live from that future back. And if you would pause, right? If you'd pause in the middle of your week, you pause in the middle of your suffering, in the crazy rush of things, right? All the things going on and you don't even have time to breathe and you're taking care of the kids and you're going to work and you have ministry and you have a thousand and one things on your plate to do. Take a moment and just catch a sight of this thing. This is real. You'll notice that this, there's no imperatives in this section. He's not commanding anything. These are realities that is already true of you, no matter what. No matter what you do, this is always already going to be true. Just take a moment, catch a sight of this thing. Now, yes, our sufferings are not going to just magically go away. Usually that's not how God works, right? And the pain, I know, it's not going to feel less real. That's true, but our hearts, our hearts would be well. And they would do a lot better than they normally do in sufferings. We would be able to say then, at the, look at, at the very beginning of verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This whole section is a prayer of praise and adoration. It's a doxology. He's lifting up to God. We'd be able to sing in spite of our sorrows. That's the power of living out of our future, feasting on that future inheritance and living back from that. So you have the beginning perspective, you're born again. You have the end perspective, but then the third perspective. And this is him directly addressing their sufferings, verses six and seven. Verse six, he says, in this you rejoice. We just talked about that. Of course, what other natural response could there be to everything that God has promised us? And he goes on, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 
so that the testing, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. What about the suffering today? All right, born again, inheritance, beginning and end covered. Well, what about right now? (laughs) I don't have enough faith. What about right now? What about this thing right now? What about this thorn in the flesh? Peter says, I know, I'm getting to it. And he says, I know you're grieved. He doesn't try to like, you know, put any spin on it. Like, eh, it's okay, it's gonna be all right. No, he doesn't say anything like that. The word is used for the same grief that Jesus suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of his crucifixion, where he's sweating drops of blood. It's the same exact word. How do I make sense of this right now? I got back, I got future, but what about right here? What am I supposed to believe? How am I supposed to make sense of all of these things? And so Peter lays it out and he says, first of all, know today that your sufferings are for a little while. And if that doesn't stump you in suffering, right, then you're at a better place than I am because that stumps me. Because with any suffering, even the minor, minor, like tiny, tiny ones, I think, oh gosh, you know, and I throw a fit and I, I throw up my hands and I complain. But he says it's for a little while. And he doesn't make any distinctions. Short suffering, lifetime of suffering, it's for a little while. Why? In comparison to eternity. In comparison to the future inheritance, it is for a little while. Right? From his vantage point, this is not our home. You know, at the beginning of the letter, Peter calls them elect exiles. We're just wandering around this earth, passing through. We're getting on to a better country. We're sojourners. We're pilgrims, right? Compared to the infinity of joys that await us, it is a little while. You have to see it that way by faith. Secondly, he says, if necessary. Look there, right? If necessary. If necessary. Peter tells us that our sufferings are not random, right? They're not accidents, they're not just cosmic mishaps that just happen for whatever reason. Right? They are not random because if our future is kept by God, if our beginning is determined by God, then whatever sufferings come in the middle right, has to be part of something greater than we can even understand sometimes that you might not even get an answer for in this life. Right? And what is that something greater? Verse 7, right? the tested genuineness of your faith through the fire, through the fire, like gold being placed in, the image is the gold being placed, a hunk of gold in a blazing hot fire by the goldsmith, you know, until, to the point where he can actually see his face reflected in that molten mass, right? Peter is saying, suffering removes the impurities of your faith, right? The unbelief that's mixed in with your belief starts to strip away at those things. It starts to remove those things. And it brings out more and more of the genuineness of your faith. Because in, on this side, right, our faith is it's corrupted. Right? We never have perfect faith. We never have a perfect heart. We never have a perfect vision of Christ. It's mixed with a lot of other things, a lot of other hopes, a lot of other trusts. Right? And how does suffering do this? Because it strips away all of our false hopes. It calls, it calls us out. It says, look, your life is off because of this, because of these hopes. Right? C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain, he says pain is God's megaphone. Right? 
It's his megaphone. It's calling out to us. And to go back to the first Peter image, right? How does, how does suffering work that way? Well, think about it. Fire, it doesn't destroy the gold. It doesn't leave the gold in ashes, right? The point is it purifies it. So our temptation is to look at the fire as punishment, right? As punishment. But it's purification. It's a severe mercy, And what he's doing, he's burning away all that self-confidence, all our foolish trust, and he's driving us back to our Savior, right? And know this, you may only find out what God was doing on that last day at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's that's possible. I mean, that that could be true. You may never get actually crystal clear, very specific reason and answer why you had to go through this particular suffering or this particular lifetime of suffering. But verse 7 teaches us that God, our Father, he doesn't doesn't see any of your sufferings that you don't get an answer for right now. None of them are trivial. He doesn't forget any one of them. He remembers each one. And on that day, what happens? Verse 7, your battle-tested faith will result in praise glory, and honor. Guess whose? Your praise, your glory, your honor. Three words all the time used for God, for Christ, giving him praise, giving him glory, giving him honor, right? Because he deserves it. Guess what? We who don't deserve it get it. We get it. Tremendous comfort, tremendous encouragement in times of suffering. Now, right, as you get these three perspectives in your suffering, I think you can't help, but you run straight. When, you, when you're running at these perspectives, you're going at them, you can't help but hit one thing, one person, the person behind all of these perspectives, and that's Jesus Christ. So that, verses 8 and 9, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Right? All in present tense. You love him. You believe in him, you rejoice right now with this glorified joy. These verses teach us that these three perspectives, beginning, end, and middle, they, they, they work, they, they get activated in our lives. They get activated in our lives through just a daily personal fellowship with Jesus Christ. I mean, in one sense, it is that simple. I don't want to trivialize anyone's suffering, but it is that simple. And Peter just assumes it. You are believing in. You are rejoicing in with glorified joy. You are loving him even though you don't see him. As you worship Christ personally, these three perspectives, right, beginning, end, and middle, they're going to become more than just truths on a page. And that's what we're hungering for. It becomes more than just doctrines. They become explosively alive and real to your heart. Right? You start to really live out of being born again. You start to really live out of your future coronation and inheritance. You really start to feel confident that though it feels like you're drowning, he's actually delivering you. He's actually delivering you. So what's your hope today? What's your hope today? I mean, what future drives you right now? What goals or dreams or aspirations, if you had to stop for a moment and write them down, what drives you today? What shapes your decisions today? And you'll know it by your reaction 
when that thing is threatened or when that thing is taken away, right? What, what happens is you get angry, you get depressed, you'll, get, you'll check out on life, you'll um, get jealous of others who have that thing and all this filth inside of you will come out. But Peter is saying, if you look up, if you look up and see him there, as the song says, who made an end to all my sin, he's at the right hand of the Father's throne, you're going to be able to say, look, there is suffering now, right? I'm being realistic, but it's okay, right? It's okay. Because my hope is not in this world. My hope is caught up, caught up in Christ. And whatever is true of him is true of me and nothing, I mean nothing, absolutely nothing can touch that. Until that starts to burn into your hearts, pray that, rehearse that. And your heart's grip on earthly hopes will slowly start to loosen. And you will be gripped by the thing that you were made to be gripped by. David prays in Psalm 32, Lord, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. The middle of suffering. The middle of suffering. Well, today, right now, we are in that middle right, of six and seven. Right now, that, you know, <laughs> you might feel like we're stuck. We're stuck in the middle. We're in the middle of the story. But can I say this without trivializing pain or cheapening anyone's pain or cheapening the answer to it? I hope I'm not. The Bible says it only gets actually better. I mean, that's the crazy thing. That's the paradoxical thing. It doesn't make sense. But he says, you look around, it's decay, but actually it does get better. Second Corinthians 4, 17 to 18 Though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For this, <laughs> this is Paul who went through every possible persecution suffering you can imagine, right? And then, had his, then was beheaded at the end. For this light momentary affliction, <laughs> right, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, then we'd be hopeless, but to the things that are unseen. Right? For the things that are seen are transient, passing away, even our worst sufferings. But the things that are unseen, like our inheritance, like our future glory, they are what? They are eternal. They are eternal. Look, the only griefs that you bear are the ones he allows you to bear. Right? And he allows for a little while and he allows for our good. Jesus bore all our griefs on the cross, all our sufferings, all our sins, everything that goes with them. He bore all of it so that what you and I bear now for a little while is to purify us and it's to get us to the finish line. Our Savior will never ask you to go through something that he hasn't already gone through himself, right? but for him, to an infinite degree. That's why, verses 8 and 9, that's why you look at him and you're like, he is trustworthy. He is precious and he is lovely to me. And as you and I rest our hopes in that kind of a savior, what's going to happen is you don't just feel better, right? You don't just get a perspective, right? As if it's just a mental trick. It's not. We get, verse 8, filled with glorified joy, inexpressible, unspeakable, Beyond words, language runs dry. Right. The joy that comes when at the end, we're going to see him face to face and we are going to obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter 
into my rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what you have done for us is absolutely beyond words. It's amazing, beyond comprehension. We thank you that you have from beginning, middle, and all the way to future glory and in eternity forever secured us in Christ and that no suffering today can touch us. No suffering today can thwart that future glory from becoming real and being realized and fulfilled in our lives. We thank you that all of this is in your hands, Lord, and, and we thank you, doubly thank you, Lord, that your son, it was through your son's death that all of this was purchased for us. What amazing grace, Father God, and I pray for anyone in our midst who is suffering, who is going through a true grief, Lord, I pray for them. We pray, God, that your comforting grace would be upon their hearts this day, that their comforts would not be in people or in things or in themselves or in just the, the problem going away, but they would have a peace that passes understanding. Their living hope in the future inheritance would keep their heart at rest, Lord, that you would show up in their hearts, that you would arrive at them at their doors and come in and hold them and make them feel deep within, Lord, your fatherly love and pleasure. We thank you for using suffering as a tool to wake us up to see how glorious you are and how anything on this earth will fail us. Oh, but God, you will never. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.